A new COVID-19 booster could be available later this week now that the FDA has given the A-OK. But how often are we going to have to roll up our sleeves? Coming up, how Americans should think about the risk of contracting COVID as the virus becomes endemic. It's Tuesday, September 12th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, abortion rights advocates say states that have full abortion bans are causing unnecessary harm to pregnant women. Patients are forced to continue dangerous pregnancies that put their health, lives, and future fertility at risk. Today, doctors and patients announced a new legal action against three of those states. And officials from UNESCO meet to decide if Venice, Italy should be listed as an endangered World Heritage Site. These stories, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are next. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he is directing House committees to initiate a former impeachment inquiry into President Biden and the role he may have played in advancing his son Hunter's business interests. Here's NPR's Susan Davis. House Republicans have already been investigating the president and his family's business dealings for months. They've yet to produce clear evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden, but McCarthy says the impeachment inquiry will focus on allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. The announcement comes as McCarthy faces pressure from former President Trump and his party's right flank to advance the impeachment process against Biden ahead of the 2024 presidential election. At least one House Republican, Matt Gates of Florida, had publicly threatened to force a vote to remove McCarthy as speaker if he did not move forward with an inquiry. Gates called McCarthy's announcement a baby step. Republicans James Comer of Kentucky and Jim Jordan of Ohio will take the lead on the investigation. Susan Davis, NPR News, the Capitol. Images from the East Libyan city of Derna today show the stark, muddy remains of floodwaters that plowed through dams and engulfed entire neighborhoods. As many as 10,000 people reportedly are unaccounted for more than 36 hours after the storm struck. The region's health minister says more than 1,500 bodies have been recovered. Search and rescue operations are in their fourth day in Morocco, where sniffer dogs are being used to search for signs of life under collapsed buildings. The death toll from last Friday's earthquake is nearing 3,000. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from a hard-hit village high in the Atlas Mountains near the epicenter. Sniffer dogs from Spain and Sweden are scampering all over a mountain of rubble that used to be a village here. More than 50 people have died in this town of a few hundred. A nine-year-old girl is the last one still missing. Houses up here are made from soft red clay, which, unlike cement and rebar, simply crumbled in the quake. Aid convoys have only made it so far, beyond which donkeys are being used to ferry water and blankets up rocky paths. People are sleeping outdoors in their farmland as aftershocks rattle their tents. In some of the most remote areas, villagers expressed anger at the government for the pace of its response. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, in the village of Tinert in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. The former soccer federation chief under investigation for forcibly kissing a member of the women's team that recently won the World Cup is being ordered to appear in court this Friday. Here's Alentero Ruiz. Luis Rubiales has been summoned to testify before Spain's national court in Madrid. The judge opened an investigation after prosecutors filed a criminal lawsuit accusing Rubiales of sexual assault for kissing the player Jenny Hermoso on the lips. That's Alentero Ruiz reporting. You're listening to... 
NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. About 70 people slept in a Red Cross shelter in Lemonster last night after significant flooding in the city. The area is under a state of emergency after it got nearly a foot of rain yesterday. Kelly Eisner is Director of Communications for the Red Cross of Massachusetts. She says the organization is providing an array of services. It looks like the main needs are um, feeding and a safe, dry place to stay. Um, I spoke to a woman personally on the phone this morning that had more than a foot of water in her basement. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the things that we're hearing right now. The mayor of Lemonster has ordered the evacuation of neighborhoods near the Barrett Pond, uh, Park Pond Dam as a precautionary measure. Governor Moore Healy is keeping an eye on the forecast as Lemonster deals with the aftermath of yesterday's storms. They dumped up to 11 inches of rain on the city. Healy says Hurricane Lee could bring more severe weather to the area later this week. One, we continue to be vigilant about the weather. We do expect more rains in the coming days. We're going to watch closely hurricane activity and how that will affect things. Uh, Two, we're going to continue to stay in close coordination, local, state, and federal officials. Healy says two dams, a seven-story building, and a set of commuter rail tracks were among the infrastructure most damaged by the storms. There was no school in Lemister today, and it's canceled for tomorrow as well. Polls in Boston remain open until 8 o'clock tonight. Voters in four of the city's districts are casting ballots for city councilor. As of about an hour ago, the election department said more than 17,000 people had voted. That's just over 9% of those eligible. Two leaders in the local art scene have announced their retirements. Joe Spaulding says he will leave the post as president and CEO of the Box Center at the end of May. He's held the role for nearly 40 years. And Martha Tedeschi will step down as director of the Harvard Art Museums at the end of the academic year. She has been in the role since 2016. In the forecast pretty muggy into this evening. Some sunshine out there, some clouds as well. Overnight tonight, could have some isolated showers, 66 for a low, and then a mainly gray day ahead tomorrow. Some thunderstorms in the afternoon, some heavy rains possible as well. Temperatures up around 78. 77 degrees now in Boston at 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by PBS with The Harvest, Integrating Mississippi Schools. American Experience tells the story of a southern town's effort to integrate its public schools in 1970. Tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden recently had an experience that many of us have gone through lately. A family member tested positive for COVID. First Lady Jill Biden. And like many of us, Biden faced the question, should I cancel my own plans and isolate? Unlike the rest of us, he had a press secretary on hand to answer. Here was a reporter's exchange with Karine Jean-Pierre after the First Lady's diagnosis. Yeah, if President Biden does test positive for COVID in the coming days, we can assume he's not going to travel to India. I'm just not going to get into hypotheticals. I'm really not. There's no updates to his, uh, to his schedule. That's where we are right now. He tested negative last night. He tested negative today. That's what matters. He's not. It seems like people all around us are testing positive for COVID, even as few of them become seriously ill. Now, the Food and Drug Administration has approved an updated booster. And just today, advisors to the CDC recommended it for everyone six months and older. So how should we be navigating the pandemic right now? Dr. Robert Wachter is chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome back to All Things Considered. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. To start with just like a headline, in a sentence or two, how would you describe where we are in this moment? Worse than we were a month or two and substantially better than we've been at most times in the last three or four years. So this is it's definitely an uptick, but it still is nowhere near the kinds of surges that slammed us in the past few years. Just anecdotally, for me, it seems like everyone from family members to coworkers is getting a, a diagnosis and not being debilitated by it. Is that what the science bears out too? Yeah, I got my first case of COVID two months ago. That's a pretty common story. The science says that the fact that we essentially have 100% population immunity, you cannot find anyone now who has neither been vaccinated nor been infected, and in most people, uh, they've gotten both. So the virus doesn't find any humans anymore that have zero immunity. That's obviously very different than uh, 2020. And what that means is that when it strikes humans, and it still is giving a lot of people COVID, the cases tend to be substantially milder than they were before. There are still people dying of COVID, but the chances of getting super sick, going to the hospital and dying are much, much lower than they were a couple of years ago. And so now there's this updated booster. Doctors have been saying for years that getting a COVID vaccine might become an annual routine like a flu shot. Is that where we've landed at this point? I think so. It's complicated because it's a little bit of four-dimensional chess that you've got to play. The boosters do four different things, and the relevance of those things differ depending on who you are and how old you are and whether you have other medical illnesses. The first thing they do quite reliably is lower the chances you're going to get very sick, uh, go to the hospital and die. And that is most relevant to people who are at risk of those things. And so a 75-year-old is, a 50-year-old who's got a couple of medical comorbidities is, a 25-year-old healthy person has a very low risk of getting very sick if they get COVID. So the benefit vaccine there is small for a young healthy person and much larger the older and sicker you are. But there are other benefits that, to me, tilt the scales to favoring the vaccine and, and the booster in pretty much everybody. It lowers the chances of getting long COVID. It lowers the chances of getting COVID, but only for a couple of months. But that's meaningful. And if you do get COVID, it reduces the amount of time that you're sick, uh, not by a ton, but by a little bit. So I think about this as a doctor and the benefits versus the risks of everything we do, like treat high blood pressure, cholesterol. It's an easy decision for an older person or someone with medical comorbidities to get the booster because they are at significant risk of a severe case. And to me, when I talk to my 30-ish-year-old healthy kids, I recommend they get the booster. I don't think it's a slam dunk for them, but I consider it really quite, quite safe. I think the benefits outweigh the risks in pretty much everybody. Do you apply the same kind of risk protection calculus to some of the practices that were so common a couple of years ago from mask wearing to social distancing to outdoor dining? Or is this kind of like cold and flu season where you go out in public, you take your chances and you live your life? I think it, it is that, that that whole risk assessment and the risk assessment is tricky. It's not just the risk to you, but are you living with other vulnerable people? And that has to get factored in, too. And then how much COVID is there in the environment? So that's why it's very tricky to sort this out. But yeah, I think, Arya, that's a fair way of thinking about it. The same kind of thinking that goes into the importance of getting boosted also goes into your thinking about how careful to be. So if you're an older person who's vulnerable and there's a spike in COVID cases as there is now, it is a time where you should be thinking about masking, thinking about foregoing indoor dining, thinking about taking Paxlovid if you get COVID, 
Uh, those are things you might say if I'm healthy and 25 years, years old, even though there's some more COVID around than there was a couple of months ago, I'm not, I'm not going to be quite as careful. So this, this kind of drives people a little bit crazy because it really is such a multidimensional and challenging decision. Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. New numbers are out on poverty in the U.S. Last year, these numbers showed a historic drop in child poverty. This year, the Census Bureau data finds that rate has more than doubled. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to explain. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So this feels like not great news. What happened? Right. It, uh, it's been quite a yo-yo the past couple of years. Uh, a year ago, the Census Bureau found child poverty hit a record low, 5.2%. Today, it's way up 12.4%, like the overall poverty rate, also a sharp rise. It happened as inflation was increasing and a lot of pandemic relief was running out. But a real key was the child tax credit. Uh, people might remember back in 2021, they got more money from it, and the credit was expanded to include millions more low-income families. Uh, Sharon Parrott of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says that was a huge for reducing the poverty rate. So we sometimes talk about the child tax credit as being an upside down policy. And that's because the children who need it the most get the least, while higher income children get more. So now with the pandemic expansion over, Parrott says millions of families lost out on this credit for their kids because they didn't make enough. Um, but married couples making hundreds of thousands of dollars do get the full child tax credit of $2,000 per child. And yes, it might sound weird. Uh, pa uh, poverty advocates would agree with that, but it is an income-based benefit. So, you know, the more you make, the more you get. Well, it, and what has the end of this credit meant for those families at the very lowest end of the income spectrum? You know, a lot of people overwhelmingly spent that credit on household essentials. I mean, we're talking rent and food. Uh, surveys showed many also used it to pay down debt or they spent it on their kids. Um, Angel Jackson is a single mom in Houston. Her son is eight. My son went to a charter school, so I bought school shirts. I got his like haircut. Like I just I was able to do like small things in small increments, took him out to eat with it. Like it came in handy, kind of like his allowance. Now, Jackson lobbies for foster parents. She says she's doing okay these days after the expanded tax credit ran out. But many other parents say they have had trouble paying bills and covering basic expenses like rent and groceries. I'm wondering, Jennifer, if we saw that giving more families a bigger child tax credit had this dramatic effect, lowered the poverty rate. Is there any talk about bringing it back? There is. Uh, now, there's a stalemate over it in Congress, um, but there has been a lot of action at the state level. Um, Adam Rubin is with the Economic Security Project, and he's been lobbying states to adopt their own child tax credit for a while. A couple of years ago, seven states had done so, and Rubin says that has now doubled, and more states have also changed other tax programs to help low-income parents. Hmm. Quickly, before I let you go, the Census Bureau also released new numbers on household income today. Day, what'd we learn? Uh, well, median household income is down about 2%. It is $74,580. Uh, lower income workers did see the largest wage gains, but record inflation last year grew more. That has recently flipped, but you know, with so many prices still high, many people may not be feeling it. Indeed. NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thank you. Thank you. Deep in the Gulf of Alaska, two miles under the ocean surface, scientists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration found something strange. Is this some sort of encrusting sponge? Uh, yeah. 
I don't know what to make of that. The scientists were aboard the NOAA ship, the Okeanos Explorer, and as they piloted a remotely operated vehicle through the deep, they encountered a four-inch-wide shiny golden orb sitting in a garden of white sea sponges. Cool. And as you can hear in this live stream of the dive from August 30th, the researchers were stumped. Uh, we're all over the place at the moment. Started with dead sponge <laughs> attachment, moved on to potentially coral, now we're thinking egg case. Huh. The team then steered the craft closer to grab a sample with the robot's suction tube. I don't know how we get it. I guess a, a suction. Hmm. I could poke at it, see how hard it is. Yeah, let's give it a little tickle. Sam Candio, who you just heard at the end there, is the expedition coordinator. He says as surprising and weird as this squishy golden orb is, every dive brings an unexpected mystery. You kind of get to experience that childlike wonder every time you go down. I think every single dive we've been on, there's something that we've all kind of scratched our heads and said, huh. He and the scientists are still scratching their heads about this golden orb, by the way. He says once the Okeanos docks, they'll send the specimen to the Smithsonian, where they will do more testing and get input from scientists around the world. Now, not everything these underwater explorers discover is quite so hard to decipher. I think the biggest one that captured our attention is the videos that we collected of of deep sea octopus brooding their eggs and you could actually see the baby octopuses within the eggs. You can see their tentacles, you can see their eyes. That's exciting. If you want to see some of those weird blobby things yourself, yes please, they are <laughs> launching more dives all week long. You can join the expedition yourself by watching the live stream at oceanexplorer.noaa.gov. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a closer look at lawsuits in Tennessee, Idaho, and Oklahoma that tell vivid stories about how abortion laws have interfered with patient care. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Just a small fraction of a loss for the Dow today on Wall Street, but bigger falls for the S&P and NASDAQ. S&P gave up more than a half percent. NASDAQ lost just over a full percent. The Cambridge biotech company 270 Bio is the latest drug company in the state to cut its workforce. 270 Bio develops cancer-fighting drugs. It says it will lay off 40 percent of its workforce. That's about 176 employees. The company says the cuts will save at least $130 million. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. 
Red Sox and Yankees are at Fenway finishing up a makeup game from last night. The Sox are now coming up short. It's 3-2 Yankees in the bottom of the ninth inning. The forecast clouds and sunshine both right now. 66 overnight for a low. Then for tomorrow should have a lot more clouds. Some thunderstorms in the afternoon. Some heavy rains possible. Temperatures right about 78 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The mission of the UN World Food Program is simple. Make the world more stable, more peaceful by feeding the hungry. In recent months, though, it has had to choose between the hungry and the starving. That is because of a massive funding shortfall. Since this spring, fixing that problem has been the responsibility of World Food Program Executive Director Cindy McCain. She joins me now. Cindy McCain, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Help me understand the severity of the problem. Um, when we say you're being forced to choose between the hungry and the starving, give me an example of where and to what extent you've been forced to reduce food aid. Well, uh, I've had to reduce pretty much around the world, quite frankly. To put it succinctly so that it's, it's easy for everyone to understand, for every 1% cut at WP, this means 400,000 people are pushed further into hunger. That's a sizable amount, and we are, we are down quite a bit of money right now. So, so our ability to deliver not just emergency food but sustaining food has gravely diminished, and consequently, people are not only starving but they are dying as a result of this. And I'll use Ethiopia as a good example, and certainly now, as you know, we have the huge issue in Chad because they're receiving most of the Sudanese refugees. And, of course, South Sudan, where lack of funding is also producing the same kind of issues. Stay with that number you just gave me. You said for every 1% funding cut that you're wrestling with, 400,000 people go hungry. Correct. How many percentage points have you had to cut? Well, we're down. Uh, my gosh, we, we're, we've been cut by half right now. Uh, so it's a quite it's quite a quite an amount of money. That's twenty million people. Exactly, exactly. We right now we have about three hundred and forty five million people that are going hungry in the world, and that's more than the U.S. population total. And so to put it in perspective, that's what we're facing right now. And are we talking about cutting the size of the food ration, like how many pounds of flour or rice or whatever? Are we talking about people being cut off from receiving food altogether? All of the above. All of the above. We, are, we have cut rations in many cases by half for those that are still eligible. And we've had to cut the roles of those uh, that are receiving food assistance uh, in many places, just just deleting it completely, we can't feed them at all. And so these are tough decisions that I that I and my team around the world grapple with every day, because how do you tell a a mother 
and a child that we can't feed them anymore. They're hungry and starving. And that's, that's what we're faced with every day now uh, as a result of this. One country I want to specifically focus you on is Afghanistan, because the WFP just announced you're going to have to drop another 2 million people in that country alone from food assistance. Right. I mean, the political situation there is unstable, to put it mildly. The economy is dire. Life for women keeps getting harder. How will that kind of increased hunger affect life, affect that country? Well, what is, right now, what it's affecting these cuts there is primarily affecting women and children uh, because those are, those are our primary recipients within Afghanistan at this point. So we've cut 8 million people in Afghanistan from assistance, and we are going to drop another 2 million very shortly as a result of this. Uh, it's a shock, and what it breeds, of course, is instability. It, it, it breeds you know, all the other bad things that can occur in a country that is as unstable as Afghanistan. And, and that's no good for anybody because we, one thing I want to implore on everyone is that food assistance, uh, starvation, those, that's a national security issue. It's not just a food security issue. It's national security. And it affects everyone involved, including the United States. Every time I talk about this around the world, I try to implore the fact that uh, food security is safety and it's security for people. And when we can't feed, then we, we breed instability, unfortunately. You're talking about this on a national security level. I also want to ask about it on a personal level. Uh, how does that feel to wake up in the morning and think it's my job to help these people and I cannot help them? It, it does not feel good. I cannot tell you the amount of sleep I've lost. And I, I knew what I was getting into with this job. I, I didn't come into it with eyes that didn't, didn't understand where we we're going. But at this particular level, it's devastating. And so I, I deal with it every day. It brings a great deal of heartache and it also breeds in me a great deal of frustration because I want people to know the absolute impact that this is having on the world. So I guess from a personal level, I try to keep it in perspective. I try to keep my team in perspective because they're the, they're the ones that are dealing with us on the front lines every day. And we have to keep going. That's our job. That's who we are as WFP. We deliver. Oh. As you have traveled the world in your months on this job and met people, spent time with them, people who are on the brink of starving or watching their mm -hmm. kids on mm -hmm. the brink of starvation, is, is there a story? Is there someone who will stay with you? Oh, I've, I've come across so many people. There was a woman and a couple of children in Somalia that... I wound up sitting with for quite a bit of time and talking to her in Somalia while I was there in a refugee camp. And she was running from hunger. She was running and trying to find a better place for her family and a better, a better life to be able to feed and, and educate her children. And the, the truth of it is, uh, she was probably one of the ones that we wound up cutting because we don't have enough money. And so she stays with me because she left some children behind. She took the most vulnerable children with her. And she walked for almost a month to get to this camp that was just over the border in Somalia. And so those kinds of stories and those and the looks on their faces are what really I'm I'm left with. Yeah. And that I deal with because uh, I can see them. I can see her like it was yesterday. And knowing full well that she wasn't going to be fed properly. Yeah. Before I let you go, is there any 
success story, any place you would point us to that gives you hope when you look at it and think, you know what, like if we put in the effort, we can really make a positive change. Well, yes, to that, I, I answered, yes, there is. I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't, didn't have hope. So I have to believe that we can fix this and that we can, can mitigate it so that people won't starve. But again, it's going to take all of us to do it. Uh, you know, certain parts, obviously Africa is in dire strife right now. Of course, we look at Yemen and other places that are just so, so torn on, on this issue. Uh, but there are some success stories, I, and I'll, Central America being one of them, working on climate change issues and farming, you know, smallholder farmers, things that are really making a difference within their communities. And I'll, I'll also talk a little bit about school feeding programs, our cash-based transfers. Those arenas and, the, and that part of WPP has been very successful. But again, we just don't have enough. Cindy McCain is the executive director of the World Food Program. Mrs. McCain, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you covering this issue. Please come travel with me sometime. I would look forward to it. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Fierce rainstorms in Lemonster in central Mass last night. The cleanup starts today and should last for a while. That story still to come on WBUR. Red Sox dropped the series opener with the Yankees this afternoon. The game ended just a few moments ago. It was 3-2 to two Yanks. They have another chance tonight in the second game of a day-night doubleheader at Fenway. Game time is 7-10. Cutter Crawford on the mound for Boston against Carlos Rodon for New York. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. Look for muggy of muggy feel into the evening tonight. Clouds, some isolated showers overnight. 66 for a low. Clouds and thunderstorms tomorrow. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com Nearly a million people have fled the civil war in Sudan into neighboring countries. They enter our home by gun... Frightened the women and force it to leave my house. The UN meets next week, and the US ambassador has a tall order find solutions for Sudan. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he's moving forward with a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden and the role he may have played in advancing his son Hunter's business interests. McCarthy has been under mounting pressure from former President Trump and certain party members to advance the impeachment process ahead of next year's presidential election. It appears that the president's family has been offered special treatment by Biden's own administration. Treatment that not otherwise would have received if they were not related to the president. 
House Republicans have already been investigating President Biden and his family's business dealings for months, but have yet to produce any clear evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. The White House calls it extreme politics at its worst. Meanwhile, at least one Republican, Matt Gates of Florida, had threatened to remove McCarthy as speaker if he did not move forward with an inquiry of Biden. Russia has sent its first oil tanker without ice protection on a voyage across the Arctic, as NPR's Jackie Northam tells us the tanker carrying nearly a million barrels of crude is en route to China. Warmer temperatures this year has allowed Russia to send several oil tankers through the northern sea route, but they've all had some sort of protection, such as thicker hull plating to withstand the pressure from ice. But the Leonid Loza, which left the northern Russian port of Murmansk on Wednesday, has none of those protections. It wasn't designed for carrying crude in icy conditions. According to the High North newspaper, the oil tanker could meet up with an icebreaker, but even bumping into an ice flow could be risky for the crew and the environment. Earlier this year, Moscow warned it would send non-ice-class tankers through the Arctic to get more crude to China to make up for a loss of revenue from Western sanctions on Russian oil sales. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cleanup efforts continue in Lemonster this afternoon after the city experienced severe flash flooding last night. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, dirt and debris remain in low-lying areas and crews are working to address large sinkholes. In the northeastern part of the city, about a dozen car owners spent the morning getting vehicles out of a ditch and nearby parking lot next to the mall at Whitney Field. Last night's floodwaters had pushed them from the road. Meanwhile, Jill Patella was one of many residents working to clear a flooded basement, among other water damage. I mean, the rain just started, and it was so hard. We've never seen anything like it. We have a new roof, and um, it leaked. My dining room ceiling is a mess. Schools will be closed on Wednesday as residents continue cleanup efforts and city officials inspect local bridges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The American Association for Arab Women is hosting a candlelight vigil tonight in Malden to commemorate those who were killed in the earthquake in Morocco last week. Tonight's vigil takes place at the Malden High School. Local Moroccan communities have already begun to raise resources for those who are affected. The death toll from the quake stands at nearly 3,000 people. Nurses at Framingham Union Hospital want to unionize. They have gathered outside the hospital today to announce they're filing a notice with the National Labor Relations Board to join the Massachusetts Nurses Association. Adam Crawford is a nurse at the hospital. He says people are tired of being a number on a spreadsheet made by absentee owners. It's time to restore balance and bring back the humane side of healthcare. Today, in this formation of this union, will be the first step in balancing this out again. Framingham Union Hospital is owned by Dallas-based Tenet Healthcare. The nurses say they attempted to meet with the company's CEO to request voluntary recognition, but they say he did not respond to their request. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And... Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. 
Got some sunshine, got some clouds out there. Look for overnight tonight, lots of clouds, a few showers, temperatures in the mid-60s. There's a flood watch in effect for tomorrow. Some drenching rains possible in the afternoon. 77 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsie Chang in Culver City, California. Venice, Italy, is known for its maze-like canals, Renaissance buildings, and gondola rides, right? But some of the things that make this picturesque city so famous are under threat now due to human-caused climate change. World leaders are coming together this month to discuss whether to add the Italian city to a list of endangered world heritage sites. NPR's Chloe Veltman has been following what's going on in Venice. It's part of her reporting on the impact of climate change on cultural heritage. She joins us now. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Elsa. So Venice was designated as a World Heritage Site in 1987, right? Why is the city now under consideration as an endangered site? Well, Elsa, UNESCO, which is a UN agency that works to designate and protect World Heritage Sites, is behind this recommendation that Venice be added to the endangered sites list. And there are a couple of reasons for this. So first of all, there are way too many tourists and there's too much development going on there. And then there's this issue of climate change. A recent UNESCO report on Venice's precarious situation says rising sea levels are threatening the city's famous old buildings and landscapes. And here's the crazy thing, there's even been drought there. Earlier this year, it was impossible for the gondolas to pass through some of the canals, apparently. I know. And Venice has taken some measures to protect its treasures. For example, it's installed temporary barriers to protect the St. Mark's Basilica from sea level rise. But UNESCO says the Italian government hasn't done enough. Well, what will it mean, practically speaking, if Venice gets designated as an endangered site? So when UNESCO adds a site to the endangered list, it requires a plan to address the threats. So the hope is that the designation will help to mobilise the authorities to take action to protect the historic city. Like, for example, strengthening the seawall. The UNESCO report suggests that they're considering maybe even elevating the small island on which St Mark's Basilica sits to reduce the risk of flooding. Elevating an island? I know, it sounds completely Bonkers, but yeah. you know, this isn't unheard of, Elsa. It isn't an issue that's specific to Venice. Let's take a city much closer to home, San Francisco. Oh, yeah. It's dealing with similar issues. I've been reporting on plans that that city has to potentially raise some of its historic waterfront landmarks up by several feet. Wow. So, what do residents and officials in Venice think about their city being labeled as an endangered world heritage site? Well, NPR reached out to a few Italian agencies for comments, but no responses yet. However, some prominent Italians have voiced their opinions publicly. Renato Brunetta, who chairs the Venice Sustainability Foundation, 
He published an impassioned opinion piece in Corriere della Sera, a major Italian newspaper, criticising UNESCO's demands and saying that Venice is actually well-equipped to protect itself from sea level rise. Well, I mean, Chloe, just to place things in context here, the costs of climate change can be devastating, right? Like, it could mean deaths, destroyed homes, local economies in ruin. So given all of that, what is the case for diverting resources to protect old landmarks as well against the effects of climate change? Well, it really comes down not to the places themselves, but people's connection to those places. Marcy Rockman is a Washington, D.C.-based consultant and researcher who's an expert on the impact of human-caused climate change on cultural heritage. And she says heritage does include tangible things like old buildings and artefacts and museums, but it's also way more than that. What makes a thing heritage are the values that we ascribe to it. It's knowledge, it's stories, it's practices, it's language. It's the things you can't put your hands on, but it's the things you share and talk about. For example, after the recent fires on Maui, there was this famous 150-year-old banyan tree in downtown Lahaina that got badly burned, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were upset about the destruction of the tree, but what was also threatened was what that tree meant for the community. I spoke with Daryl Fujiwara a few days after the fires. He's the organiser of a hula festival that usually happens under the banyan tree's massive canopy. He says the tree is a hub for all sorts of cultural happenings. That's where everyone goes. It's kind of like town square for us. So essentially, when we attach meaning to places, we're more invested in their survival. And what makes climate change feel tangible is when we see the devastating impact it can have on the things people value in the world. And that is what my series is all about. So, for example, I explore this idea in my upcoming story about the process of rebuilding a Hollywood landmark that burned to the ground in a wildfire a few years ago. And the challenge is how to rebuild in a way that both pays tribute to the past while enabling a relatively fire-safe future. I can't wait for that story. That is NPR culture correspondent Chloe Veltman. Listen out for her series on climate change and cultural heritage on All Things Considered over the next couple weeks. Thank you so much, Chloe. A real pleasure, Elsa. The number of states with full abortion bans in effect continues to tick up. The count is now at 17 states. In three of those states, Tennessee, Idaho, and Oklahoma, patients and doctors announced new legal actions today. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, they tell dramatic stories describing how abortion laws interfered with their care. In Tennessee, Nicole Blackman was denied an abortion even though her fetus had a lethal condition and she showed signs of dangerously high blood pressure. Everything hurt. My vision got blurry and I felt sharp pains when the baby moved. I was told I was at high risk of having a stroke. She labored for 32 hours before giving birth to a stillborn child. She is now suing Tennessee. In Idaho, Jennifer Atkins found out her fetus had Turner syndrome, a condition that is fatal for the fetus. She was told how her own health was at serious risk, but she had to travel to Oregon for an abortion. People need to understand how these bans can affect the people they know and love. That's why I'm here today and suing Idaho over these bans. And in Oklahoma, a woman named J.C. Staten, whose pregnancy was non-viable and dangerous, was told to wait in the parking lot until she got closer to death and doctors could provide an abortion. Staten told NPR in April about how, sitting in the hospital, her husband Dustin feared she would die. I look over and he is just, like, 
had in his hands this huge like six foot guy he's like i lose everything i lose my family now staten has filed a complaint against oklahoma children's hospital for violating a federal law called mtala that requires hospitals to stabilize patients facing a life-threatening condition Staten and the patients in Idaho and Tennessee are represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights. That's the organization that has already garnered headlines for a lawsuit against the state of Texas for its abortion laws. Nancy Northup, the group's president, said patients in other states with abortion bans took notice. After we filed our case in Texas, our phones started ringing off the hook. Each state that bans abortion includes some kind of medical exception, but it's become clear that those exceptions don't always prevent the situations these patients describe. In both new state lawsuits, physicians are plaintiffs too. Dr. Emily Corrigan told reporters that Idaho state lawmakers are aware that these laws are causing problems, and they've said as much publicly. That there are unintended consequences of the law that they passed, that they didn't understand what would happen with this law, or they never thought that Roe would be overturned. You know, I've heard them say all those things, but we have not had enough action. She's willing to try any means necessary to improve the situation for patients and doctors, including going through the courts, because, she says, the status quo is dire. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's crunch time in the talks between car makers and the auto workers union. And one complicating factor is the uncertainty over how the transition to electric vehicles will affect U.S. auto jobs. As NPR's Camila Dominoski reports, the switch comes with big costs and big government incentives. The negotiations aren't over whether or not to make electric vehicles. The UAW and the automakers agree that's happening. As UAW President Sean Fain put it in a virtual rally this past weekend. We support a green economy. Um, You know, we have to get behind this. We have to have a planet we can live on. But he says this transition makes it more important that assembly line and battery workers get good pay and benefits. If we don't secure this work, Um, and we don't secure it at a living standard, at big three standards, it's not going to be a good future for anyone. The union is asking for more than 40% raises, plus pensions, cost of living increases, and job security. Auto companies say despite high profits, they cannot afford that. And one big reason why? The high cost of the electric transition. There is some truth to this. Ed Kim, an analyst with Auto Pacific, says, yeah, this is expensive for companies. Yes, they've been uh, very profitable, but they're also at the same time very eager to uh, reinvest those profits into their EV product development. Auto companies have already pointed to the high cost of the EV transition to explain painful cuts. Take Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler, which made $18 billion last year. It recently shut down a plant in Belvedere, Illinois, citing the cost of switching to EVs. But the plant, which made the Jeep Cherokee, had seen layoffs even before this year. Patty Ellison's shift was cut in 2019. It pretty much turned my whole life upside down. Given the choice between a layoff or a transfer, she transferred to Michigan. Her husband still lives in Illinois. She spoke to me on a five-hour drive back to visit him. She gets home about once a month. Anything but convenient. And when I asked her about Stellantis' explanation that they shut her old plant because of the cost of switching to EVs, she was skeptical. It sounds like an excuse to me. I 
if they're going to make electric vehicles, why can't we make them there in Belvedere? She'd be happy to build an EV, but there is one thing that does give Ellison pause. Uh, they say it takes less people to build electric vehicles than it does a combustion vehicle. The union is concerned about this, too. On the other hand, new battery plants are popping up to power those new EVs with lots of jobs, and the UAW is working to organize them. Meanwhile, the federal government is pouring billions of dollars into electric vehicles, and the union has been pressuring the Biden administration to make sure that workers feel a benefit from that federal money, not just the corporations. Patty Ellison isn't sure what impact the shift to EVs will have on workers like her. I don't know. It remains to be seen. But she says she's cautiously optimistic. One of the things her union is pushing for is the reopening of her old plant. And if that happens, analysts think it will probably be building EVs. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announces the U.S. House will move forward with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. Red Sox get another chance tonight to pull out a win over the Yankees. Today's matinee ended in a 3-2 loss for the Sox. Tonight for Game 2, Cutter Crawford gets the start against Carlos Rodon. 7-10 is the first pitch. It's 4:48. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART. Women and goddesses rise up against Zeus in this modern-day myth. Two weeks only, now playing. amrep.org. There's a flood watch in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until 8 Thursday morning. The ground is pretty well saturated already, so there could be a lot of runoff tomorrow, especially in urban areas and regions with poor drainage. So today's the day to scoop out the leaves from your neighborhood storm drain. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com and Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. $24 billion of pandemic-era child care funding expires at the end of this month. Providers nationwide say they'll have to raise tuition, reduce class sizes, or shut their doors. 3.2 million children could lose their child care as a result of this money going away. How to save childcare, the people who provide it, and the families who rely on it. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Nearly two months after rain and floods pummeled Vermont, the immediate cleanup is over. Now the hundreds of people whose homes flooded face a difficult choice. Should they rebuild, especially as climate change is expected to bring more frequent severe weather? Home buyouts can be complicated, but they do eliminate future flood risks. And as Vermont Public's Liam Elder Connors 
Reuters reports it's often a deeply personal decision. There's a stream in Andrew Gibbs's backyard in Woolkit, Vermont. You can hear the rushing water from his back door. That stream runs right into a river, which is across the street from Gibbs's house. During the heavy rainstorm in July, both waterways burst their banks. Gibbs's house filled with six feet of water. And you want to just show me around a little bit what happened with the flood? You want to look inside the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About a month after the floods, I visited Gibbs's small yellow two-bedroom house. There's plastic wrapped around the outer walls and a few no trespassing signs posted outside. Walk right in there if you want. I can't really go too far. The smell of mildew and sewage hung in the air. The hallway was nearly impassable. Floodwaters had knocked over shelves, torn cabinets down, and even wrenched the hot water heater off the wall. Gibbs pointed to the bathroom, where the toilet and walls were covered in brown muck. You know, that's my bathroom. I pushed everything out of my sewer tank. My leach field's on the other side of the barn here. I do believe when the water came through, it went through my leach field into my sewer tank and pushed it all right up into the house. Gibbs is thinking about a buyout, which is one flood mitigation measure. State and local officials work with homeowners to apply for federal money to buy flood-prone homes and then knock them down. Some of Gibbs's neighbors, like Cole Pearson, are also looking into buyouts. Pearson says floodwaters left an inch of mud inside his home and destroyed most of his belongings. I don't want to put up a, a brand new place there and then, you know, who knows when it will flood again. And I'm, I'm sure it will. So it just makes sense to, to not go back. There appears to be significant interest in home buyouts in Vermont following the July storm, according to Vermont Emergency Management. The agency says nearly 200 households have filled out an initial intake form. The state is still a few months away from sending applications into the federal government. But the buyout process could still take months or years, says Kevin Geiger with Two Rivers Ottaquichi Regional Planning Commission. If you don't have a house, you're trying to make do with what you can until the money arrives, and it'll be quite a while until that happens. There are other challenges. FEMA only pays a portion of the buyout cost, meaning Vermont needs to set aside matching funds to cover the rest. Some towns are worried about the loss of revenue that would come from having fewer homes on the tax rolls. There are also personal hurdles. For Gibbs, whose sewer system backed up in his home, he's torn about leaving. His family has owned the land for four generations. I'm a country boy. You know, born and raised here, and I like it. Gibbs's family used to milk cows and farm here before selling off most of the 200 acres. Now, Gibbs is thinking about saying goodbye to the final piece. Does it make you sad at all to think, like, to leave the family? Yeah. It's hard. Real hard. Don't really see it right now, but once I get have to walk away, then it's probably at me. Gibbs says it's hard to leave something you've had your whole life. For NPR News, I'm Liam Elder-Connors in Woolkit, Vermont. With actors and writers on strike in Hollywood and with no apparent end to those strikes in sight, you may be wondering what to watch next on TV or on streaming platforms or if there's even going to be anything to watch this fall. Well, fear not. NPR's culture critics have come together to write a comprehensive guide to the top new shows, as well as shows you may have missed. And we have NPR TV critic Eric Dagens here with us today with some of his top picks. Hey, Eric. Hey. All right, so I'm looking at this streaming guide, and I have to be honest, I'm amazed that there's still quite a lot of new content to watch. I guess this was stuff that was finished before the strikes, right? What are some of the new series that are worth checking out? 
Well, you know, everybody's talking about FX's American Horror Story Delicate because it stars reality TV queen Kim Kardashian in her first major scripted TV series role. I mean, she is actually acting. <laughs> and I think she's going to surprise people in this series. It also stars Emma Roberts in this story about a woman who can't convince people her pregnancy is going horribly wrong. It's going to debut on September 20th. But I am really drawn to new TV shows featuring characters of color in challenging new ways. NBC has this show called Found. It's centered on a black woman who has a special squad of investigators to look into tough missing persons cases, especially involving non-white people. This starts on October 3rd. And David Oyelowo is starring and executive producing in something he's tried to get made for years. It's a drama called Lawman Bass Reeves, a former enslaved man who became one of the first black deputy U.S. Marshals. I'm the law of this land. I'm Deputy U.S. Marshal Bass Reeves. And your wicked days are done. Oyelowo had to team with Yellowstone creator Taylor Sheridan to get this made. It debuts November 5th on Paramount+. Plus. Cool. Okay, well, there's also some fantastic TV shows returning with new seasons this fall. Anything that you can recommend? Okay, well, I'm a huge fan of Fargo, uh-huh. FX's Fargo series, so I'm really psyched to see the return of this anthology series for its fifth season in November with Ted Lasso alum Juno Temple playing this Midwestern housewife with a mysterious past, and Mad Men star John Hamm is a sheriff from North Dakota who's tracking her down. Don't you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> nice. and I'm also a serious superhero nerd, right? So I'm looking forward to the second season of Marvel's Loki on Disney Plus and a return to the chemistry between the stars Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson. Even though this show is going to face the challenge of seeing co-star Jonathan Majors facing some serious harassment and assault charges in real life as the series rolls out. Yeah. Well, I also saw that this edition of the Fall Streaming Guide has a tab called Worth Revisiting because there's just so much TV out there that you end up missing a lot of cool shows every year. So what might have people missed? Well, my pick here is Beef, which was this amazing limited series on Netflix. It features Walking Dead alum Stephen Young and stand-up comic Ali Wong. And they're these two people involved in this road rage incident that becomes an epic feud. And it references Asian family culture, capitalism, so much more. I'm also a huge fan of Justified. Now, this series aired on FX and starred Timothy Oliphant as a U.S. Deputy Marshal Raylan Givens. This character from an Elmore Leonard story who lives like a modern-day Western policing the Kentucky holler where he grew up with a petty criminal as a dad. And there's six seasons of that on Hulu. Well, lately, it also seems that people are gravitating towards shows that have, like, a lot of seasons. You know, because it's just fun. (laughs) It's candy. You can have it on in the background. Like, Real Housewives, right? Do you have any recommendations that fit that criteria? Well, in our streaming guide, Aisha Harris had a wonderful write-up of Murder, She Wrote, which is the mystery series featuring Angela Lansbury as a mystery writer and amateur detective in the murderiest small town (laughs) in TV, Cabot Cove, Maine. And there's 12 seasons of that on the Peacock streaming service. And I've grown addicted to these edited clips of Law & Order episodes on the NBC show's official YouTube channel. You can watch the cops find the murderer and settle on a suspect, or you can watch them process prosecute the suspect in these 10-minute clips that are like televised potato chips once you start watching them. That is NPR TV critic Eric Dagens. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is 90.9 WBUR. Nice to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Should be muggy into this evening. Some clouds and maybe isolated showers overnight tonight. About 66 for a low. Then we've got a mainly gray day ahead tomorrow. A wet one too. Thunderstorms in the afternoon. There is a flood watch in effect through the day tomorrow all the way until about 8 o'clock on Thursday morning. Look for temperatures up around 78 degrees. Thursday, we should gradually see the sunshine move in back to the mid-70s. And then for Friday, possibly the return of the sunshine. This is WBUR, 71 degrees at 459. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says his chamber will launch an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. The White House says McCarthy's decision is extreme politics at its worst. Today is Tuesday, September 12th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, advisors to the CDC have backed the use of new COVID-19 booster shots the FDA approved yesterday. The jabs could be available in a few days. Fierce rainstorms and a frightening amount of damage in the central mass town of Lemister. It got pummeled with nearly a foot of rain last night. We'll take you to the city. And roughly 581,000 gallons of wine poured out of two burst tanks in Portugal on Sunday led to a river of wine flowing down a hilly street. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House and congressional Democrats are blasting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the administration is calling the probe extreme politics at its worst. Speaker McCarthy says launching the inquiry is the logical next step of the ongoing probe into the Biden family and whether the president improperly assisted or benefited from his son Hunter Biden's business dealings. The White House has repeatedly argued that the investigation has not offered any evidence of wrongdoing by the president. In a statement, the administration takes aim at McCarthy, accusing him of caving to the extreme far-right members of the party who are threatening to shut down the government unless they get an impeachment inquiry. Meanwhile, McCarthy is up against a September 30th deadline to reach an agreement on a government spending bill, which could be marred by internal disagreements within his caucus. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Residents of Marrakesh are pitching in in the relief effort for the nearby mountain villages hard hit by Friday's earthquake. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley met some in a grocery store. I'm in a supermarket in Marrakesh, and there are just high school kids, adults, just people from all walks of life helping with the aid effort. They're just buying milk and pasta and oil and coffee. Like 25-year-old Moinahim Fadel and his friends who have filled a shopping cart and will drive the groceries up into the Atlas Mountains. Jamila Hassoun is president of an NGO for culture and education, but today she says she's a volunteer for a national emergency. We have here some food, some books for children, and we have to, to do it fastly because the helicopter is waiting now. Thousands of people in the Atlas Mountains have been left homeless. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Marrakesh. The death toll in eastern Libya continues to rise as waters begin to recede from devastating flooding there, though it's still not clear how many have died. Head of Delegation for Libya for the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent says upwards of 10,000 people are still missing, with death toll expected to be in the thousands. And the International Energy Agency says demand for fossil fuels will start declining. NPR's Michael Copley says it's not expected to fall fast enough to stop global warming, though. Climate change is mainly caused by greenhouse gases released into the atmosphere when humans burn fossil fuels. And almost every year, humans have burned more fossil fuels than they did the year before. But according to the head of the International Energy Agency, it's about to change. Fatih Birol says demand for oil, gas, and coal is going to peak in the next few years. That's due in part to growth in cleaner technologies like solar panels and electric vehicles though he warns the world still isn't cutting emissions fast enough. To prevent deadlier storms and heat waves, Burrell says governments need to do more to keep average temperatures from rising by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Michael Copley, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cleanup efforts in Lemonster may take several days following yesterday's severe storms and flooding. Parts of several streets were washed away, and numerous homes are dealing with flooded basements. It's rare for a storm in the northeast to drop 11 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. But as WBR's Miriam Wasser reports, scientists say that human-caused climate change makes events like this a lot more likely. A warmer atmosphere holds more water and encourages sudden intense bursts of rain. As a result, in a warmer world, when it rains, it often literally pours. Paul Kirshen is a professor of climate adaptation at UMass Boston. He says it's hard to say whether climate change directly caused the storm and flooding in Lemonster, but he adds the computer models are clear. And we can expect to see more and more events of this sort in the future because of our changing climate. Kirshen says that historically, a storm of this magnitude only happens in New England once every 500 years. But by the end of the century, it could happen as often as once every 100 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Some Bostonians are heading to the polls today. Four district city council seats are up for grabs. That includes Kendra Lara's in Jamaica Plain. She is facing two challengers. Over the summer, Lara was charged by police after the car she was driving crashed into a Jamaica Plain home. Police say the car was not registered and that Lara didn't have a valid license. Voter Maria Elise Kennedy says that's not changing her vote for Lara. She wasn't going as fast as initially alleged, and even so, like, someone whose speeds doesn't seem like it would cancel out being a good, you know, representative or lawmaker in a different way. Like, I don't know, we've all made mistakes, so that just is, like, not really weighing on my decision today. 
polls will stay open until 8 o'clock tonight. The Atlantic White Shark Conservancy has removed five white shark detection receivers it deployed this season off the coast of Cape Cod. The Conservancy says it took the devices out of the ocean in anticipation of potential impacts from Hurricane Lee. They cost about $15,000 each. They send data to the Sharktivity app. That allows people to in the public to track the location of white sharks. Red Sox will have another chance tonight to pull out a win over the Yankees. Today's matinee ended in a 3-2 loss. Tonight's game starts at 7-10. Should be overnight tonight. A fairly calm night. Lots of clouds around. Maybe the chance of showers. Temperatures, <clears throat> excuse me, around 66 degrees. Then for tomorrow, lots of rain during the day. Look out for some thunderstorms as well. A flood watch in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until 8 o'clock Thursday morning. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced today that the House will move forward with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. Now, McCarthy has come under intense pressure from hardline members of his own party to either get more aggressive with Biden or risk losing his job as speaker. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now with the latest. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Elsa. So I know that House Republicans have been already investigating Biden and members of his administration all year long. Why did the speaker launch this official inquiry now? Because he's coming back to the Capitol after six weeks of recess with a lot of conservatives saying he needs to act or potentially face a vote to oust him. I mean, a lot of allies of former President Trump are in the House Republican conference, and they're angry about the indictments that were announced against him over the summer. They argue that Trump was impeached twice when Democrats were in charge, so Republicans should impeach President Biden. This also comes at the same time that McCarthy's trying to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the month. A lot of these same conservatives who want impeachment also want deep spending cuts and are threatening the speaker's job over that debate as well. So I think part of the calculation from the speaker that is that if he greenlights impeachment now, he could stave off some of that anger from the far right. It's really unclear if that's going to work. Huh. But, but what is the basis that McCarthy is citing for I don't know, any possible high crimes and misdemeanors committed by President Biden? I mean, McCarthy's arguing that the president lied to the American people about his own family's foreign business dealings. House committees have investigated Hunter Biden, the president's son, for months, Mm -hmm. and they cite witnesses who say that then-Vice President Biden was on some calls with his son Hunter and stopped by a business dinner, and that there was shell money, uh, money directed to various shell companies. But none of these witnesses has produced any direct financial connection between Hunter Biden's business dealings and President Joe Biden. Right. So how has the White House responded so far? 
you know, they really weren't surprised. They've been sort of staffing up and preparing for a possible impeachment inquiry. Uh, Ian Sams, he's a spokesperson for the White House, called Speaker McCarthy's announcement, quote, extreme politics at its worst. The Biden-Harris campaign also said that the speaker is essentially Trump's super surrogate. And they say he's turning the House of Representatives into an arm of the presidential campaign. Well, are most Republicans on board with this plan? There's still a split among House Republicans. Those on the far right say it's long or overdue. Some say it should have happened sooner rather than later. And some of them were not even satisfied with today's announcement. Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates warned on the House floor that the speaker was not in compliance with the deal he cut back in January to be elected Speaker of the House. And Gates even suggested he could bring up a vote to oust him at some point. This is a baby step following weeks of pressure from House conservatives to do more. We must move faster. But also McCarthy has some House moderates who want to build a case before moving forward with any impeachment vote on articles. As for Senate Republicans, they've really kind of sidestepped this today. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said before impeachment should be rare, said the Senate has its hands full dealing with spending bills. He's not going to give any advice to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That is NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Thank you, Deirdre. Thanks, Elsa. Many kids on Maui missed out on an important ritual this year, going back to school. That's another consequence of the wildfire that destroyed or damaged homes and buildings, including a cluster of schools. More than 1,500 students, that is more than half the kids in the Lahaina district, they have already enrolled elsewhere. But some parents are fighting to keep their kids together, as NPR's Ping Huang reports. It's a really hot morning a few weeks after the fire in Lahaina. About 500 parents, teachers, and students are gathered under an outdoor tent spilling onto the lawn. Keith Hayashi, superintendent for Hawaii Public Schools, faces a tough crowd. The purpose of today's community meeting is to gather input from you to hear your concerns. He's here at a local church to share plans for the school year. He hears a lot of concerns and also anger from parents like Anella Gordon. Her son is a senior at Lahaina Luna High School. He's also a football player. My senior athlete got robbed his freshman year because of COVID. He got robbed half his sophomore year because of COVID protocols. Now getting robbed his senior year? How fair is that? The high school, the intermediate school, and Princess Nahi Ena Ena Elementary School are clustered at the top of a hill. They're looking over what used to be Lahaina Town. It's now 2,000 acres of ash and debris. The three schools are standing, but they remain closed. The Department of Education says it will take at least two months to test the safety of the air, soil, and water. The wind blows soot over the surrounding neighborhood. That's where we meet Samantha Kava'akoa on her front porch. She's a five-minute walk from the elementary school her son would usually attend. My name's Kai Kane, and I'm from here, and I am eight. <laughs> Anybody at the school knows Kai Kane. There's only, like, one Kai Kane. He's so outgoing. I know there's two Kaikanis, but when you say Kaikani, you're the one that pops to everybody's head. They're like, Kaikani! You know, he's like, yeah, he's loved by everyone. But now he's spending his days at home. On this day, there are volunteers testing their water and fixing the air conditioner. The house they live in didn't burn, but Kava'akoa says it doesn't mean it's safe. Every time that we cook rice, wash dishes, or brush our teeth is with bottled water. 
and then when we come outside, we wear our mask. There are other school options for students, distance learning or going to other communities. For parents like Hava'akoa, that's a non-starter. That's far from home. You know, it's not fair to him or to them. These other schools are more than 20 miles away, past a narrow, winding stretch of highway called the Pali, the cliffs, prone to falling rocks. Parents worry that if there's an accident on the road, they won't be able to reach their kids. And in Kava'akoa's case, her son Kaikani has ADHD. He needs one-on-one assistance. And I'm not going to put him in a brand new school with people that don't know him. The superintendent says they'll reopen the schools in Lahaina after the mid-October break. That's more than a month from now. Until then, Kava'akoa's taking care of Kaikani full-time. The inn where Kava'akoa worked at the front desk burned down in the fire. Her job, which she loved, is gone. For me, I'm a single mother. I have two kids. Um, I have a car. I have a phone bill, you know. I have rent to pay, but I was making it with my job. Now, with that school, she doesn't have childcare. Back at the community meeting, parents' anger keeps rising. It's been nearly two hours. There's still a steady line of people waiting to speak. Hi, everyone. Um, your Department of Education has failed us so miserably by the lack of communication. Mikey Burke comes to the microphone. She has four sons who are Kaiapuni students. They're enrolled in a Hawaii language immersion program. She gets emotional pleading with school officials. Social and emotional well-being is the only concern right now. She says the expectations for school in a disaster zone should be different. I don't need them to know math and science, maybe a little PE, take them down to the beach, teach them about their place. That's all we need right now. I mean, we are people of the Aina here. We know how to rough it in Lahaina. The kids here have grown up together, but if they don't stay together now, Mikey Burke fears they'll never be reunited. Or if they are someday down the road, they'll be strangers. Ping Huang, NPR News, Maui. And NPR's Marisa Pinolosa produced our story today. On Sunday morning, the wine was flowing freely in Portugal, but nobody was drinking. Nearly 600,000 gallons of red wine coursed like a burgundy river downhill through the streets of the small Portuguese town of São Lourenço do Bairro. It literally painted the town red, as you can see on social media videos. It sounds like a supernatural calamity or a biblical parable, though the official explanation is an industrial accident to burst storage tanks. A nearby distillery was storing this wine to convert it into a more pure form of alcohol, part of an effort to solve an even bigger problem, that there is too much wine in Portugal. So this is huge. People in Europe are drinking less wine, especially in the countries that used to drink the most, right? And those would be the the wine-producing countries. Elizabeth Carter is a professor at the University of New Hampshire who studies Europe's political economy, especially the wine business. She says Portugal, like other major European producers, France, Italy, that it's currently suffering from a wine surplus. Too much production. Perish the thought, Elsa. Not enough demand. (laughs) Well, in the first quarter of this year, wine exports were about 8% lower than they were last year. And according to the European Commission, wine consumption is falling in Europe. Elizabeth Carter says this has to do in part with changing habits over a long time. It's just not so standard to have that weak glass of wine with lunch, maybe unfortunately. 
<laughs> so governments are collecting some of this surplus, especially at the low end of the market, and turning it into other products like alcohol for pharmaceutical products and cosmetics. That gets some income to the producers for their great production. As for the flash flood of wine, well, authorities managed to divert the red tide before it got into the nearby river, but not before it left some stunning images. I saw the picture of the wine river in Portugal, and it's like, I wouldn't mind being there. <laughs> Although it's not great wine, so maybe it wouldn't be so great. <laughs> Meanwhile, if any European vintners are listening, we know a place you could send some surplus. Yeah, just uh, contact us uh -huh. you know, after today's show, obviously. Oh, obviously. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Just a small fraction of a loss for the Dow today, but bigger falls for the S&P and NASDAQ. S&P gave up more than a half percent. The NASDAQ lost just over a full percent. Business news coming up at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments. Reminding you, it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Amtrak is extending its special night owl fares on trips between Boston and New York. Passengers on trains between the two cities departing between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. can get fares for as low as $20 one way. Trips between Boston and Providence during those hours can cost as little as $5. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fair, drop-off lunch service for celebrating Spanish Heritage Month in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. Look for clouds overnight tonight. A few showers, temperatures in the mid-60s. Got a flood watch in effect for tomorrow. Some drenching rains possible tomorrow afternoon. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Everyone age six months and older should get one of the new COVID-19 boosters. That is the recommendation today from independent advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. The recommendation marks a crucial step toward making the new shots available. And in a crucial step towards understanding this development, we're going to bring in NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Hi, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. So you have been listening all day long, I'm told, to the CDC committee of doctors and scientists. They were debating who should get the new shots. What'd you hear? 
You know, Mary Louise, some experts have argued that the only people who really need to get another shot are those who are most vulnerable to getting very sick from COVID, like, you know, older people and those who have other health problems, because most younger, healthy people are still well protected by the immunity they've built up from all the shots and infections they've gotten at this point. And some of the CDC advisors agreed with that. But in the end, the committee voted overwhelmingly, 13 to 1, to recommend the shots for everyone six months and older. Here's Dr. Camille Cotton from Harvard, who argued a simple, broad recommendation would avoid confusing messages that would discourage vaccination. Let's keep America strong, healthy. Let's do away with COVID-19 as best we can by prevention of disease through vaccines. Let's make things clear. Rob, just remind us what these new vaccines are, how they work, how well they're going to work. Sure. They're reformulated versions of the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. They were just cleared by the FDA yesterday, and a similar vaccine from Novavax may be coming soon, too. The new shots target a much more recent strain of Omicron than the earlier iterations of the vaccines. Now, that strain's been replaced by more recent evolutions of Omicron, but the new shots still look like they're a close enough match to boost people's fading immunity and cut the chances of getting COVID, spreading the virus, and getting so sick they'll end up in the hospital, die, or develop long COVID. These shots the shots aren't like some kind of perfect magic force field by any means, but the shots should help people fight COVID better. Okay, I've got a bunch of news you can use type quick questions to get through. One, okay. when are the shots going to be available? Okay, so the new shots should start to become available as soon as tomorrow in some parts of the country. They're not technically free anymore, but for most people, their insurance will pay for them, and the federal government is making the shots available for the uninsured at no cost. Next, should we get the shots right away or does it depend like when you last had COVID? Yeah, so that is a little complicated. It has to be at least two months since the last shot, but some experts say people should wait at least three months from either their last shot or their last infection. Others say four to six months would be better, but either way, lots of people, especially those at high risk, should really think about getting a shot pretty much right away. And I have heard some talk about waiting, trying to time the shots for when they're most needed. What's the advice on that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Uh, the strategy is getting the most bang for the buck by waiting until a couple of weeks before you're planning to do something that may be risky, like travel for work or visit family over the holidays. But some say waiting can be risky too, especially since the numbers are all going up right now. Do we know how many people will get one of the new shots? What's the expectation? You know, that's hard to predict, but only 17% of those eligible for the last boosters got one, and only 43% of those ages 65 and older, those people who are really need one, got one. So, you know, Mary Louise, it could be a hard sell this time around, too. And real quick, Rob, in addition to these COVID boosters, the flu shot. Should we get that, too, while we're yep, at the pharmacy? Yeah, people should get the flu shot, and they can also get, for the first time, an RSV shot, and they can get them all together or space them out if they're worried about the side effects. NPR's Rob Stein. Thank you. You bet, Miralise. Nearly 150,000 auto workers could go on strike later this week if their negotiations with the big three automakers don't reach a breakthrough. For President Biden, this is a moment of potential political peril. NPR's senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports. President Biden is a union guy and a car guy through and through. Auto manufacturers large, largely been a middle class career with good pay that you could raise a family on. Well, that's not going to change on my watch. 
But he hasn't had a lot to say about contract talks between the United Auto Workers and Detroit car makers. And what he did say, on Labor Day no less, kicked up dust. He told reporters he didn't think a strike would happen. The union was quick with the rebuke. The option of striking is their leverage in these talks. Here's UAW President Sean Fain on CNBC. I think uh, our strike can reaffirm to him of where the working class people in this country stand. And, and, you know, it's time for politicians in this country to pick a side. Either you stand for a billionaire class where everybody else gets left behind, or you stand for the working class. President Biden's political brand has been built on siding with the working class. Gene Sperling, a top economic advisor to Biden, is his point person on these talks. Sperling says the president wasn't making a prediction and certainly wasn't trying to undermine the union. He stands with UAW workers, uh, but you present a situation like this to him, yeah, he's going to look at it optimistically because he wants the parties to believe that they can find that win-win opportunity. These talks come as the Biden administration pushes the industry hard to make and sell more electric vehicles. There are huge financial incentives in his landmark climate legislation known as the Inflation Reduction Act. But electric vehicles require fewer workers to build, and the batteries themselves could end up being made in non-union factories or at much lower wages. These negotiations are where the rubber hits the road. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is a Democrat from Michigan. Although the battery issue isn't technically part of the negotiations, it threatens a rift between auto workers and their longtime allies in the Democratic Party. Dingell says it's not unlike 2016. That's when former President Donald Trump won Michigan, in part because she says workers didn't feel like Democrats cared about them. Donald Trump didn't deliver on trade, but he talked about trade. He showed an empathy for it. So it's going to be very important that President Biden show them that he is paying attention, that he does care, that he wants to protect their jobs. Most of the country's biggest labor unions have already endorsed Biden's reelection bid, but not the United Auto Workers. And that lack of an endorsement is hanging over the contract talks. Here's the UAW's Fane on MSNBC. You know, the one thing we've made clear is that weeks our endorsements are going to be earned, not freely given. Um, that's one thing we're doing differently, and, and there's a lot of work left to be done here. Fain went on to say he's no fan of Trump as he runs for president once again. But Trump is actively courting auto workers and criticizing the move to electric vehicles. In 2016, he was able to peel away a significant share of votes from rank-and-file union members. Cedric DeLeon, who specializes in labor studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, says Biden needs to side with the workers in these talks and be vocal about it. Because I know who will take advantage of that if he isn't, you know, full-throated on behalf of, uh, of workers. Trump will. He points out this is far bigger than Biden earning the endorsement of the UAW. There are millions of union workers in America watching to see how this goes. And they're reliable voters, many of whom live in swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Tamara Keith, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. There's a flood watch in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until 8 Thursday morning. Could be a lot of runoff, especially in urban areas and regions with poor drainage since the ground is already soaked. 
So today is the day to rake leaves out of your local storm drain. The flood watch is in effect for much of eastern and central Mass down through Rhode Island and from northern Connecticut as well. Overnight tonight, clouds, isolated showers, about 66 for a low. A mainly gray day tomorrow, as we said, thunderstorms in the afternoon, some heavy rain possible, temperatures up around 78 degrees. Thursday, we should gradually see the sunshine move in with temperatures in the mid-70s, 74 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at ClarkLiving.com. Nearly a million people have fled the civil war in Sudan into neighboring countries. They enter our home by gun, uh, frighten the women, and force it to leave my house. The U.N. meets next week, and the U.S. ambassador has a tall order. Find solutions for Sudan. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Alabama is once again asking the Supreme Court to let it keep Republican-drawn congressional districts. In essence, the state is asking the high court to do exactly what it refused to do just months ago. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. In June, the court ruled that Alabama's congressional map violated the Voting Rights Act because in a state with seven congressional districts and a 27 percent black population, the GOP-dominated legislature had created just one congressional district in which black voters are either a majority or close to it. The court's 5-4 to decision upheld a lower court decision that had required the creation of a second majority black congressional district. But the state created a second district with just a 40% black population, prompting the lower court to appoint a special master to draw a new congressional map with two majority black districts. Now the state has appealed to the Supreme Court for a second time, seeking to block the lower court order. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A new census report shows the U.S. poverty rate has jumped significantly since pandemic benefits ran out last year. The child poverty rate has more than doubled following the expiration of pandemic-era child tax credits and high inflation that's undercut household spending power. NPR's Jennifer Ludden says just a year ago, the Census Bureau found child poverty had hit a historic low. Experts point to the expanded child tax credit as key to this poverty yo-yo. More lower-income families were able to get it during the pandemic, and most parents said they used it on really basic household needs or to pay down debt. When it ended, surveys found many struggled to pay their bills or buy enough food. President Biden says the census report shows the dire consequences of Republicans' refusal to extend the child tax credit. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A Red Cross shelter in Lemonster will stay open through at least tomorrow following drenching rains and flooding in the city yesterday. Last night, about 70 people spent the night at a shelter. The Lemonster area remains in a state of emergency after it got hit with nearly a foot of rain. Kelly Eisner is with the Red Cross of Massachusetts. It looks like the main needs are um, feeding and a safe, dry place to stay. Um, I spoke to a woman personally on the phone this morning that had more than a foot of water in her basement. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the things that we're hearing right now. 
The mayor of Lemonster has ordered the evacuation of neighborhoods near the Barrett Park Pond Dam as a precautionary measure. Governor Maura Healy is keeping a close eye on the forecast as Lemonster deals with the aftermath of the storm yesterday. Healy says Hurricane Lee could bring more severe weather to the area later this week. One, we continue to be vigilant about the weather. We do expect more rains in the coming days. We're going to watch closely hurricane activity and how that will affect things. Uh, Two, we're going to continue to stay in close coordination, local, state, and federal officials. Healy says two dams, a seven-story building, and a set of commuter rail tracks were among the infrastructure most affected by the storms. There will be no school in Lemonster tomorrow. There was no school there today either. Massachusetts Congressman Lori Trahan is calling U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy a puppet speaker. This after McCarthy announced plans to launch an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Trahan says McCarthy is using impeachment to appease the most extreme members of his party. Congressman Seth Moulton calls the impeachment inquiry the most egregious case yet of Republican weaponization of government for political retribution. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. On the steamy side this evening, clouds, a few showers overnight, temperatures in the mid-60s. Got a flood watch in effect for tomorrow. Some drenching rains possible tomorrow afternoon. 75 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-DEMENTIA.ORG. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The novel Forever Home is a dark comedy set in a small town in Ireland, a page-turner about blended families and family secrets. The author is a best-selling memoirist and novelist who also happens to be the beloved host of a TV talk show called The Graham Norton Show. Graham Norton, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. What a delight. Before we get to this specific book, what does writing fiction do for you broadly speaking, that interviewing celebrities on The Graham Norton Show does not? Well, I suppose in my head, it's sort of my quiet, happy place. It's the only thing I do that is sort of solitary, that doesn't involve a meeting. (laughs) Because everything else does. You know, everything is through filters. This is the only thing that I really feel is mine. I have a real sense of ownership of these books because, you know, obviously there's kind of editors get involved later on, but really they belong to me, I feel. And and I suppose that's what's pleasurable about it. And yet you were well into your career before you started writing fiction. When you began as an author, you started as a memoirist. What made you decide to make that move? Well, now, I don't know about you. I'm in awe of young people who write novels because, I don't know, when I was in my kind of late teens, early 20s, 30s, I was out. You know, I didn't have time to sit, <laughs> sit at a desk and, and write a novel. You were living life. 
I was. I was I was getting the life experiences to put into a novel. Uh, so I don't know. Those people are real writers where it's their it's their number one ambition. It's the thing they absolutely must do. For me, it was something I wanted to do, but it wasn't really till I was in my 50s that I sort of felt I had time to sit at a desk. And I'm so glad in a way that I waited because I think if I had written books when I was younger, they'd have been very kind of glib and cynical and quite harsh. And mm. I think, you know, as you get older, you develop hopefully a bit of empathy and you're not quite as, as oddly, not quite as cynical as I was when I was young. So these books are very different to novels I would have written you know, back then. You, you joke that when you were young, you were getting the life experiences that allow you to write novels. How much is that literally true? I mean, how much of the life experience you accumulated does feed into your fiction. I mean, they're not autobiographical, but you know, if you read any novel, it does give you an insight into who wrote it because, you know, it all came out of their head. <laughs> so <laughs> these people in this novel, you know, they, they borrow from me, they borrow from people I know, they borrow from people I've met. So it, it, it's kind of an amalgamation of all of that. So, you know, if somebody wanted to psychoanalyze me to the nth degree, it's all laid bare <laughs> in, in, in these books. But there's not much of my life. I deliberately tried to keep my life out of the books mm -hmm. because, I mean, it's different here in this country where I'm, you know, I'm not really very well known at all. But back home, I, the danger was because my name was on the cover of the book, I would be reading the book over people's shoulders. Huh, they would, right. They Everyone would, they feels would, like they know you so well from television, from podcasts, from live events. Yeah, they would be, you know, hearing my voice and associating the book with me. So I tried really hard to keep anything to do with, you know, the media or celebrity or London, anything that people might associate with me out of these books hmm. you know in, in my first book I, I there were there weren't even any gay characters I, you know i went that far it was kind of like right nothing to do with me uh -huh. <laughs> now i allow myself a few a few a few gays wander through the pages now <laughs> the, and again the, the the minor characters in this novel they're not they're not the center of attention no no they're not no. <laughs> this novel forever home unfolds from so many different perspectives we see chapters through the eyes of different narrators was there one character who was your inroad to this story well, I began the story with Carol, who is the central character, and she's a woman in her middle age, and she's in her kind of second relationship. And when people are older and in relationships, you always imagine they're very stable and, you know, people are settled. But of course, that's not the world we live in now. People are often in a the second, third, fourth relationship. And, you know, if it's a new relationship, you've no claim on property, on homes. There's none of that. Mm. And that's what happens to Carol with her older, I suppose, boyfriend, you'd call him partner. And uh, she was away in. And it was a very kind of dark, bleak story. And then Carol's mother entered the scene, uh, Moira. Oh, and She's and, my favorite. Well, she's kind of mine too. And she changed the book. You know, she, she was the one who brought so much comedy because she's just a funny woman and so it, she turned something quite dark into a sort of dark romp i would say she's so nosy she really has no business being in the story and that's part of what makes her so <laughs> delightful right is that like what are you doing here well i guess you're here 
yeah, like like mothers, like mothers do. Uh, and also, I even think mothers have grown children. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And I think she's got that mothering thing where she shows her love through action, through deeds, rather than through actually telling anyone <laughs> that she loves them. Uh, you you know she loves you because she's right there. <laughs> like, is, <what? laughs> is Moira based on anyone you know? Well, she's not my mother, uh, <laughs> but they do have they do have similarities. Uh, Moira has a thing. Her version of silence in the car. Oh, I love taken, this. Yeah, is ta is taken from my mother. Where you know, silence in the car to me is you driving along silently. For my mother, it is a constant monologue as she drives along. I've kind of I wouldn't like to live there. She always says washing out that dog that killed, and it, until finally you get to where you're going and you've parked wrong. Uh, and that <laughs> it's not a meaningful monologue. It's not revelatory. It's not disclosures about the inner life. It is just a sort of like filling it's, the air with sounds. Yeah, it's birdsong. It's birdsong. Bird <laughs> yeah, is what it is. Yeah. Your life is much more cosmopolitan than your fiction. Your novels tend to focus on small town experiences. And so as you fly from London to New York to Los Angeles, do you ever long for the kind of parochial life that you write about, minus the murder? <laughs> well, the thing is, I kind of get it because I, I do have a place in Ireland. And so every every summer we'll go there for a couple of months. And what's nice is when I leave Ireland, I never want to. I always mm. kind of think, oh, I wish I could stay for a few more weeks. I am very aware that if I did stay for a few more weeks, I would then be going, oh, when, <laughs> when can I get out of this backwater and back to the excitement of life? So I kind of I, I kind of have the best of both worlds. And also it keeps me in touch with that world so that when I am writing the novels, one, I enjoy going back there in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but two, I'm sort of confident that I'm getting this right. These are the sorts of houses people live in. These are the sorts of cars they drive. This is the way young people in Ireland talk. So it, that that's kind of important to me. You know, right? I was going to say the difference is that when you go back back to a small town in Ireland, everybody knows who you are. But but I guess the nature of a small town is that everybody knows who everybody is anyway. And so that's not actually a difference. Yeah, no, I, I remember I did a little talk for a youth group in Bantry, County Cork, which is a, a small, tiny town. And uh, this girl put her hand up to ask a question. And she said, what's it like being famous? And uh, I was saying, well, that's, you know, I understand why she's asking that. But how on earth do you answer that question? And then it came to me that, oh, it's like living in Bantry. You know, hmm. everyone knows your business. And there's people you want to avoid in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> what a perfect answer. Graham Norton, his new novel is called Forever Home. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Oh, Lytton, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. It means a lot. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Residents, business owners, and city officials in Lemonster are facing months of recovery and repairs after intense rain and flooding that hit yesterday. City officials say 9 to 11 inches of rain fell. Some residents who live near a dam were told to evacuate early this morning. WBR's Carrie Young spent much of the day in Lemonster and joins us with more. First, tell us, Carrie, what you saw when you arrived today. Where was the most damage? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The most damage was kind of spread out through town. 
it depended on if you were in a low-lying area or you happened to be near a stream. That was the case for uh, one area that I went to. I went over to see a sinkhole. City officials told me that there were several of these types of, you know, damaged spots in the roads and then corresponding damages to the houses and buildings next to it. Um, I couldn't see the damaged house from where I was. There was police tape there, but I mean, just looking, you could see a chunk of the road missing. And then, you know, when I walked up the street from that, that happened to be near a uh, one of the dams that officials had some concern about. And I ran into Jill Patella in the neighborhood, and she said she was just stunned by the severity of the rain and the damage that it did to her area. The rain just started, and it was so hard. We've never seen anything like it. Um, I mean, were you scared last night, hearing all the rain come down in such a like yeah. heavy way? Yeah, absolutely. Our, um, we have a new roof, and um, it leaked. My dining room ceiling is a mess. Um, our cellar flooded. Our neighbor's cellar's flooded. You know, I hear I heard a lot of people's cellars flooding, and another neighbor that I ran into kind of described their backyard the night before as a pool or a lake. It was just, there was so much water. And I know there were some really frightening moments when some of the streets started to flood and flood very quickly. You spoke to some drivers who were caught in that today. I did, yeah. I was, you know, I, I when I got to town, I just started to drive around to see what I could see. And I I got near a mall parking lot and saw cars parked really in a funny way. And then I realized, like, wait a second, that they weren't there you know, that they didn't do that on purpose. And so I went over to talk to someone who was working in his car, kind of clearing some things out. His name was Joseph, uh, Joseph Lafreni. He is from New Hampshire. He was visiting uh, the area for work. Um, and he told me what happened. It just sounded so scary. The uh, water was right up to my dash. Wow. Where, where were you coming from? Because you're in the parking lot now, basically. Yep. On that road. A, a truck came by fast. The wave that that made pushed me right over to here. <laughs> How did you get out of it? Just opened the door. The door opened up and I... Luckily. Yeah, yeah. and went, waded through the water. Yeah, so he was literally just driving on the street right next to the mall and was pushed over. I mean, it had to be 50 feet floating um, and then was in waist-deep water to get out of uh, to get out of his car. And there were several cars in that parking lot. They were dealing with the exact same thing. It just sounds unimaginable. Um, are there any areas of Lemonster still flooded or any residents who've still evacuated? So the evacuation order has been lifted. Uh, city official or yeah, city officials did say today that the, the dams that they were worried about had been shored up or they were on their way to being shored up. So now at the end of the day, it, it seems like we have gotten there. Unless homes were, you know, at a point where they were unlivable, those are really the only people who can't go back into their homes. Um, you know, I know people were hesitant to leave this morning. Not everyone did under the evacuation order, but but it's a few people did. You know, there were some people in, in the shelters that were set up this morning. I know Governor Maura Healy toured some of the damage there this afternoon. Can you tell us what she said about what she saw? Yeah, I mean, she, you know, devastation in quite a few areas and she saw places that you know uh people had 
a long time, like months of recovery ahead of them. And so I asked her, you know, with more rain coming, at least with this potential hurricane that might hit the area soon, what, uh, you know, what was being done to invest in um, shoring up state resources? And and here is what she told me, and it had to do with prioritizing climate in her uh, administration. You know, one of the reasons that we have prioritized climate and resilience is because this is the world we now live in. Every day we see weather that we haven't seen before. Uh, things are happening that people haven't dealt with before. Yeah, so, you know, just a lot of work ahead. WBR's Carrie Young speaking to us from the city of Lemonster, which is still under a state of emergency from the flooding of nearly a foot of rain that fell yesterday. Thank you very much, Carrie. Thank you, Lisa. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clouds and a few showers overnight tonight down in the mid-60s. Got more wet weather tomorrow. Flood watches in effect with some drenching rains possible tomorrow afternoon. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Leslie University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at leslie.edu. And Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Officials in Libya say hundreds of people have died. Thousands are feared missing in floods after a storm hit several coastal towns and cities. In the city of Darna, a dam failed with floodwaters swallowing whole neighborhoods. Emergency responders describe the situation as a catastrophe. They say the toll might get much worse. All of this is happening in a country that's already divided divided by rival governments that run different areas. Infrastructure is weak and cities are impoverished after years of war. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been contacting people in the country and has our report. A giant tornado, part of the Mediterranean storm, Daniel bears down on a town in eastern Libya. And then, as other videos also captured by residents show, come the floods. In the coastal Darna, a dam broke, sending a roaring torrent of water through the city, swallowing whole neighborhoods. Distressing videos show people caught in the water, being dragged out to sea. Others are submerged while still in their cars. For at least a day after the disaster happened on Sunday, there was almost no information. Phone lines were down and access roads destroyed, one of the only ways to reach the devastated area was by sea. It's disaster. Thousand is is missing now. So much damage there. It's uh, what can I say to you? Ahmed Al Hudal, a local journalist from a nearby town, was one of the few to make it inside Darna. On a bad phone line, he says he arrived to find bodies strewn amid the mud and the debris. I see many people deaf on the street like that. With, with no help and uh, too much help. Hello? 
When we reconnect, he says he's seen six-storey buildings collapsed. Libyan authorities say some thousand bodies have already been found and that the true death toll may well be much higher, possibly in the thousands. But amid the current chaos, the toll is hard to know. Local authorities have started rescuing the stranded by helicopter. Speaking from their emergency operations room, Faraj Al-Hassi of the Libyan Red Crescent describes an overwhelming situation. We also have over 10,000 calls from people needs to be rescued also. We, we have a map, uh, we've done a mapping, uh, we're talking about uh, over 350 uh, buildings were completely destroyed. The rescue operations are made so much harder because this is a country already devastated by years of war. Since the conflict that removed long-time dictator Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, Libya has been swallowed by years of tribal and political fighting that have left it divided and ruled by rival governments. It's really a difficult and complex uh, uh, scenario. Tommaso de la Longa, a spokesperson for the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, says they are struggling for what thousands of people will be needing. We are talking about... Uh, thousands and thousands of people who, who, I mean, talking about the survivors now, uh, who lost everything. So uh, it's not just uh, uh, how to feed them now or to, I mean, to to give them a shelter, but it's really how to make sure that uh, they will get the support they need in the weeks and unfortunately months to come. Egypt has sent military aid and the United States is among several countries sending emergency funds to relief organisations. The challenge now is how quickly that help can reach those in need. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Rome. Love it or hate it, pro football is prone to hyperbole. So there was a messianic joy when quarterback Aaron Rodgers signed on with the New York Jets. But it appears that he, like the Greek warriors before him, can be brought down in an instant, as he was last night in their home opener. And yes, it was due to his Achilles heel. He's down. He's down. Is he hurt? These guys all think he's got a high ankle sprain. No! There's no way! Why? Do bad things happen to good people? That was Hall of Fame quarterback Peyton Manning real-time commentating on the game along with fan reactions to the injury on TikTok. Well, the Jets did win in overtime, but Rodgers, we learned today, he is out for the season. I would say in the immediate aftermath, there was definitely like a silence, like a weird, like everybody kind of like holding their breath, trying to figure out what was happening. I think everybody's pretty depressed today. That's Zach Rosenblatt, who covers the Jets for The Athletic, and he was at last night's home game. And for Jets fans, well, this disappointment is nothing new. No, no, no. New Yorkers curse. New Yorkers curse. Dude. The Jets have not played in a Super Bowl since 1969, which they won. As you heard, fans feel cursed, and there is some evidence to support that feeling. Well, the idea was they've been cursed since Joe Namath's career ended. Rosenblatt again. Namath led the Jets to that one Super Bowl victory, but his days in New York were over in 1977. And the Jets have only made the playoffs 12 times since then. It's kind of like puts into perspective the kind of misery they've dealt with. The Jets have tied for the longest streak without making the playoffs in sports right now at 12 years 
And it's just been, yeah, it's just year after year, they start out with hope and then it goes away pretty quick. And there's one thing after another, a lot of it's, you know, mismanagement, bad coaching or bad roster building. But this was the first time everybody felt pretty good about the roster that was built and the coaching staff in place. And then this happened. What's worse, this kind of season ending injury has happened to multiple Jets quarterbacks. Holding his leg on the ground is Vinny Testaverde. Well, the way he's beating that turf, it's not good news for the New York Jets. Now, it was a season-ending injury for the 1999 Jets quarterback. And again, 2005, starting quarterback Chad Pennington went down. Pennington brought down again. It's a fumble. He leaves the game with a shoulder injury. That In the same game, backup quarterback Jay Fiedler followed. Fiedler completes it upfield, but he injures himself on the play. He's got to leave. So you get the idea. Season after season, the Jets and their fans feel more like Charlie Brown on the field. And well, last night's loss. Aaron Rodgers kind of represented, you know, what they've been seeking for so long. He just kind of represented hope that this fan base hasn't really had in a long time. And, and you know, as, as they say on Ted Lasso, I guess it's the hope that kills you. But hey, Jets fans, you're still 1-0. And as the god of coaching Vince Lombardi himself said, gentlemen, this is a football. With a spike in COVID cases and a new booster, who should get the shot? And what should you do if you or your loved ones test positive? These are questions many people are asking right now. And on the latest episode of our podcast, Consider This, we speak with Dr. Robert Wachter, chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, about how to navigate the current COVID moment. That's on our daily podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness, with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. A CDC advisory board is backing the decision to approve an updated COVID-19 booster shot. It could be available this week. Doctors are weighing in on who should get in line. 
it's an easy decision for an older person or someone with medical comorbidities to get the booster because they are at significant risk of a severe case. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The long view on COVID coming up. The wife of the late Senator John McCain, Cindy McCain, talks about the opportunities and the vast challenges of heading up the new world food program. And new data find child poverty has shot back up after the pandemic aid ran out last year, especially an expanded child tax credit. There are bipartisan calls to bring back a version of it. These stories, Wall Street numbers, they're down. And the forecast are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Five former Memphis police officers now face federal charges in connection with the killing of Tyree Nichols in January. NPR's Martin Costi has more. Nichols died in January after he ran from a traffic stop and officers of an anti-crime unit caught him and took turns beating the 29-year-old black man. Five detectives, who are also black, were fired and faced second-degree murder charges in state court. Now Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark says they've been indicted for violating Nichols' federal civil rights. They aided and abetted each other in using that excessive force and that they failed to intervene to stop that excessive force. We also allege that the detectives failed to render medical aid. These charges are separate from the Justice Department's ongoing investigation of patterns or practices of civil rights violations in the Memphis Police Department. Martin Costi. NPR News. A panel of advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is backing the broad use of new COVID-19 vaccines as cases of the respiratory illness rise. More from NPR's Maria Godoy. The advisors voted 13 to 1 to recommend the vaccines for people ages 6 months and older. While the benefits appear to be greatest for the oldest and youngest people, the benefits of vaccination exceed the risks for everyone, according to a CDC analysis. The universal recommendation, as opposed to one that applies to select groups of people, could ease the rollout of the vaccines and improve access and equity. The new vaccines target a much more recent variant of the Omicron strain called XBB.1.5. Lab data suggests the updated shots should provide good protection against COVID variants currently circulating. Maria Godoy. NPR News. The U.S. decides this week how much aid to withhold from ally Egypt. NPR's Michelle Kalman explains why. By law, $320 million, about a quarter of the annual U.S. aid to Egypt, can't be released unless the administration certifies that Egypt's authoritarian regime is improving its human rights record. Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee, says while Egypt has released about 1,600 political prisoners in the past year, it has arrested 5,000 more. So for every political prisoner that Egypt releases, three more are jailed. That's one step forward and three steps back. Murphy says the Biden administration has already decided to withhold $85 million, and he'd like to see the rest put on hold, too. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. As rescuers arrive in more remote areas of Morocco affected by last Friday's earthquake, the number of dead is expected to rise. Crews have continued to find some survivors buried beneath the rubble. The actual death toll is unknown, though it's clear thousands have died in the quake. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 17 points. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy is surveying the damage around the state after last night's severe rainstorms. Today she was in North Attleboro, which received close to four inches of rain yesterday, according to the National Weather Service. We uh, deployed boats, literally boats, uh, to make sure that we were there to help evacuate people. So there are a variety of state assets that we bring uh, to bear in these situations. Healy also toured Lemister this afternoon. That city got about 11 inches of rain last night. The governor said she's pressing the federal government for relief to help rebuild after the storm damage. Boston's preliminary election is underway, and voters in four city council districts are hitting the polls. The polls are open until 8 tonight. WBR's Walter Wuthman reports from District 6, where embattled Councillor Kendra Lara is fighting to keep her seat. Laura is facing re-election as she contests criminal charges stemming from a car crash earlier this summer. Ada Fosser of Jamaica Plain said she voted for Labour attorney Ben Weber, one of Laura's opponents. I'm sorry about all of the trouble. Uh, I hope she has success, but uh, I don't think she's in a good position right now to represent the district. Jamaica Plain resident Mallory Rice said she supports Laura's progressive policies. But at the same time, I do think she does a great job representing our district, and I would like to see more from her on that end. William King, an IT director for a nonprofit, is also running for the seat. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. More than 200 members of the Massachusetts National Guard are getting ready to work in hotels that are housing families who are homeless. Governor Healy activated the Guard in response to the growing number of shelter sites in the state that do not have staff to provide services. WBR's Rob Lane has more. More than 6,000 families are in the state's shelter system. Many of those are Haitians fleeing turmoil in their home country. Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Donnelly told WBUR's Radio Boston that the Guard will be tasked with helping people access housing, food, and medical care. Today, they're still in the process of ramping up. They're getting briefings today from uh, Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency in terms of what their duties are and uh, what they can expect in the coming days. Massachusetts is the only state that guarantees everyone a right to shelter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The American Association for Arab Women hosts a candlelight vigil tonight at 6.30 in Malden in remembrance of those who were killed in the Moroccan earthquake last week. Some 3,000 people have died so far. Suad Akib is founder and president of the Malden-based organization. People, they have no food, no shelters, and people are still in the debris that they couldn't reach the villages because they don't even have roads. And even with the helicopters, they don't have a flat space where they can land. Tonight's vigil takes place at Malden High School. The group is also organizing a fundraiser Saturday to support the Moroccan people. On the muggy side this evening, clouds, a few showers overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, some drenching rains possible in the afternoon, high temperatures in the mid-70s. Sunshine ahead, though, for Thursday. This is WBUR at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden recently had an experience that many of us have gone through lately. A family member tested positive for COVID, First Lady Jill Biden. And like many of us, Biden faced the question, 
Should I cancel my own plans and isolate? Unlike the rest of us, he had a press secretary on hand to answer. Here was a reporter's exchange with Karine Jean-Pierre after the first lady's diagnosis. Yeah, if President Biden does test positive for COVID in the coming days, we can assume he's not going to travel to India. I'm just not going to get into hypotheticals. I'm really not. There's no updates to his, uh, to his schedule. That's where we are right now. He tested negative last night. He tested negative today. That's what matters. He's not. It seems like people all around us are testing positive for COVID, even as few of them become seriously ill. Now, the Food and Drug Administration has approved an updated booster, and just today the CDC recommended it for everyone six months and older. So how should we be navigating the pandemic right now? Dr. Robert Wachter is chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's great to be here. To start with just like a headline, in a sentence or two, how would you describe where we are in this moment? Worse than we were a month or two and substantially better than we've been at most times in the last three or four years. So this is it's definitely an uptick, but it still is nowhere near the kinds of surges that slammed us in the past few years. Just anecdotally, for me, it seems like everyone from family members to coworkers is getting a, a diagnosis and not being debilitated by it. Is that what the science bears out, too? Yeah, I got my first case of COVID two months ago. That's a pretty common story. The science says that the fact that we essentially have 100% population immunity, you cannot find anyone now who has neither been vaccinated nor been infected, and in most people, uh, they've gotten both. So the virus doesn't find any humans anymore that have zero immunity. That's obviously very different than uh, 2020. And what that means is that when it strikes humans, and it still is giving a lot of people COVID, the cases tend to be substantially milder than they were before. There are still people dying of COVID, but the chances of getting super sick, going to the hospital and dying are much, much lower than they were a couple of years ago. And so now there's this updated booster. Doctors have been saying for years that getting a COVID vaccine might become an annual routine like a flu shot. Is that where we've landed at this point? I think so. It's complicated because it's a little bit of four-dimensional chess that you've got to play. The boosters do four different things, and the relevance of those things differ depending on who you are and how old you are and whether you have other medical illnesses. The first thing they do quite reliably is lower the chances you're going to get very sick, uh, go to the hospital and die. And that is most relevant to people who are at risk of those things. And so a 75-year-old is, a 50-year-old who's got a couple of medical comorbidities is, a 25-year-old healthy person has a very low risk of getting very sick if they get COVID. So the benefit of vaccine there is small for a young healthy person and much larger the older and sicker you are. But there are other benefits that, to me, tilt the scales to favoring the vaccine and, and the booster in pretty much everybody. It lowers the chances of getting long COVID. It lowers the chances of getting COVID, but only for a couple of months. But that's meaningful. And if you do get COVID, it reduces the amount of time that you're sick, uh, not by a ton, but by a little bit. So I think about this as a doctor and the benefits versus the risks of everything we do, like treat high blood pressure, cholesterol. It's an easy decision for an older person or someone with medical comorbidities to get the booster because they are at significant risk of a severe case. And to me, when I talk to my 30-ish year old healthy kids, I recommend they get the booster. I don't think it's a slam dunk for them, but I consider it really quite, quite safe. I think the benefits outweigh the risks in pretty much everybody. Do you apply the same kind of risk protection calculus to some of the practices that were so common a couple of years ago, from mask wearing to social distancing to outdoor dining? Or is this kind of like cold and flu season where you go out in public, you take your chances and you live your life? 
I think it, it is that, that that whole risk assessment and the risk assessment is tricky. It's not just the risk to you, but are you living with other vulnerable people? And that has to get factored in too. And then how much COVID is there in the environment? So that's why it's very tricky to sort this out. But yeah, I think Ari, that's, that's a fair way of thinking about it. The same kind of thinking that goes into the importance of getting boosted also goes into your thinking about how careful to be. So if you're an older person who's vulnerable and there's a spike in COVID cases as there is now, it is a time where you should be thinking about masking, thinking about foregoing indoor dining, thinking about taking Paxlovid if you get COVID. Uh, those are things you might say if I'm healthy and 25 year, years old, even though there's some more COVID around than there was a couple of months ago, I'm not, I'm not going to be quite as careful. So this, this kind of drives people a little bit crazy because it really is such a multidimensional and challenging decision. Dr. Robert Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. New numbers are out on poverty in the U.S. Last year, these numbers showed a historic drop in child poverty. This year, the Census Bureau data finds that rate has more than doubled. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to explain. Hey there. Hi. Hi. So this feels like not great news. What happened? Right. It, uh, it's been quite a yo-yo the past couple of years. Uh, a year ago, the Census Bureau found child poverty hit a record low, 5.2%. Today, it's way up 12.4%, like the overall poverty rate, also a sharp rise. It happened as inflation was increasing and a lot of pandemic relief was running out. But a real key was the child tax credit. Uh, people might remember back in 2021, they got more money money from it, and the credit was expanded to include millions more low-income families. Uh, Sharon Parrott of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says that was a huge for reducing the poverty rate. So we sometimes talk about the child tax credit as being an upside-down policy, and that's because the children who need it the most get the least, while higher-income children get more. So now with the pandemic expansion over, Parrott says millions of families lost out on this credit for their kids because they didn't make enough. Um, but married couples making hundreds of thousands of dollars do get the full child tax credit of $2,000 per child. And yes, it might sound weird. Uh, poverty advocates would agree with that, but it is an income-based benefit. So, you know, the more you make, the more you get. Well, and what has the end of this credit meant for those families at the very lowest end of the income spectrum? You know, a lot of people overwhelmingly spent that credit on household essentials. I mean, we're talking rent and food. Uh, surveys showed many also used it to pay down debt or they spent it on their kids. Um, Angel Jackson is a single mom in Houston. Her son is eight. My son went to a charter school, so I bought school shirts. I got his like haircut. Like I just, I was able to do like small things in small increments. Took him out to eat with it. Like it came in handy kind of like his allowance. Now, Jackson lobbies for foster parents. She says she's doing okay these days after the expanded tax credit ran out. But many other parents say they have had trouble paying bills and covering basic expenses like rent and groceries. I'm wondering, Jennifer, if we saw that giving more families a bigger child tax credit had this dramatic effect, lowered the poverty rate. Is there any talk about bringing it back? 
There is. Uh, now there's a stalemate over it in Congress, um, but there has been a lot of action at the state level. Um, Adam Rubin is with the Economic Security Project, and he's been lobbying states to adopt their own child tax credit for a while. A couple of years ago, seven states had done so, and Rubin says that has now doubled, and more states have also changed other tax programs to help low-income parents. Hmm. Quickly, before I let you go, the Census Bureau also released new numbers on household income today. Day. What did we learn? Uh, well, median household income is down about 2%. It is $74,580. Uh, lower income workers did see the largest wage gains, but record inflation last year grew more. That has recently flipped, but you know, with so many prices still high, many people may not be feeling it. Indeed. NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thank you. Thank you. Deep in the Gulf of Alaska, two miles under the ocean surface, scientists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration found something strange. Is this some sort of encrusting sponge? Uh, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. The scientists were aboard the NOAA ship, the Oceanus Explorer, and as they piloted a remotely operated vehicle through the deep, they encountered a four-inch wide, shiny, golden orb sitting in a garden of white sea sponges. Cool. And as you can hear in this live stream of the dive from August 30th, the researchers were stumped. Uh, We're all over the place at the moment. Started with dead sponge (laughs) attachment, moved on to potentially coral... Now we're thinking egg case. Huh. The team then steered the craft closer to grab a sample with the robot's suction tube. I don't know how we get it. I guess a a suction. Hmm. I could poke at it, see how hard it is. Let's give it a little tickle. Sam Candio, who you just heard at the end there, is the expedition coordinator. He says as surprising and weird as this squishy golden orb is... Every dive brings an unexpected mystery. You kind of get to experience that childlike wonder every time you go down. I think every single dive we've been on, there's something that we've all kind of scratched our heads and said, huh. He and the scientists are still scratching their heads about this golden orb, by the way. He says once the Oceanus donks, they'll send the specimen to the Smithsonian, where they will do more testing and get input from scientists around the world. Now, not everything these underwater explorers discover is quite so hard to decipher. I think the biggest one that captured our attention is the videos that we collected of of deep sea octopus brooding their eggs and you could actually see the baby octopuses within the eggs you can see their tentacles you can see their eyes that's exciting anything that is weird and blobby and we can't place that's always exciting and we see a lot of weird blobby things um, to sound very unscientific. If you want to see some of those weird blobby things yourself, yes, please. They are <laughs> launching more dives all week long. You can join the expedition yourself by watching the live stream at oceanexplorer.noaa.gov. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. As if driving in Boston wasn't tough enough, the cost of auto insurance has jumped nearly 18 percent over last year. Why car insurance got so expensive and some ideas on how to save a few bucks tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. 
On Wall Street, just a small fraction of a loss for the Dow today, but bigger falls for the S&P and the Nasdaq. S&P gave up more than a half percent. The Nasdaq lost just over a full percent. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And Merrimack College, helping teachers create healthy classrooms with a nine-month online graduate certificate in social-emotional learning. Online.merrimack.edu. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Boston-based DraftKings is apologizing for holding a 9-11-themed promotion yesterday. It was called Never Forget, and to win, you had to pick three New York-based teams to win their games. DraftKings said in a statement that it respects the significance of the day for our country, especially for families of those who are directly affected. Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the terror attacks. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. This is WBUR 73 degrees at 621. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The mission of the U.N. World Food Program is simple. Make the world more stable, more peaceful by feeding the hungry. In recent months, though, it has had to choose between the hungry and the starving. That is because of a massive funding shortfall. Since this spring, fixing that problem has been the responsibility of World Food Program Executive Director Cindy McCain. She joins me now. Cindy McCain, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Help me understand the severity of the problem. Um, When we say you're being forced to choose between the hungry and the starving, give me an example of where and to what extent you've been forced to reduce food aid. Well, uh, I've had to reduce pretty much around the world, quite frankly. To put it succinctly so that it's it's easy for everyone to understand, for every 1% cut at WP, this means 400,000 people are pushed further into hunger. That's a sizable amount, and we are, we are down quite a bit of money right now. So, so our ability to deliver not just emergency food but sustaining food has gravely diminished, and consequently, people are not only starving but they are dying as a result of this. And I'll use Ethiopia as a good example, and certainly now, as you know, we have the huge issue in Chad because they're receiving most of the Sudanese refugees. And, of course, South Sudan, where lack of funding is also producing the same kind of issues. Stay with that number you just gave me. You said for every 1% funding cut that you're wrestling with, 400,000 people go hungry. Correct. How many percentage points have you had to cut? Well, we're down. Uh, my gosh, we, we're, we've been cut by half right now. Uh, so it's a quite it's quite a quite an amount of money. That's twenty million people. Exactly, exactly. We right now we have about three hundred and forty five million people that are going hungry in the world, and that's more than the U.S. population total. And so to put it in perspective, that's what we're facing right now. And are we talking about cutting the size of the food ration, like how many pounds of flour or rice or whatever? Are we talking about people being cut off from receiving food altogether? All of the above. 
all of the above. We are we have cut rations in many cases by half for those that are still eligible, and we've had to cut the roles of those uh, that are receiving food assistance. Uh, in many places, just just deleting it completely. We can't feed them at all. And so these are tough decisions that I that I and my team around the world grapple with every day, because how do you tell a a mother and a child that we can't feed them anymore? They're hungry and starving, and that's that's what we're faced with every day now, uh, as a result of this. One country I want to specifically focus you on is Afghanistan, because the WFP just announced you're going to have to drop another two million people in that country alone from food assistance. Right. I mean, the political situation there is unstable, to put it mildly. The economy is dire. Life for women keeps getting harder. How will that kind of increased hunger affect life, affect that country? Well, what it, right now, what it's affecting these cuts there is primarily affecting women and children, uh, because those are those are our primary recipients within Afghanistan at this point. So we've cut eight million people in Afghanistan from assistance, and we are going to drop another two million very shortly as a result of this. Uh, it's a shock, and what it breeds, of course, is instability. It 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 breeds, you know, all the other bad things that can occur in a country that is as unstable as Afghanistan, and and that's no good for anybody. Because we, one thing I want to implore on everyone is that food assistance, uh, starvation, those that's a national security issue. It's not just a food security issue, it's national security. And it affects everyone involved, including the United States. Every time I talk about this around the world, I try to implore the fact that uh, food security is safety and it's security for people. And when we can't feed, then we, we breed instability, unfortunately. You're talking about this on a national security level. I also want to ask about it on a personal level. Uh, how does that feel to wake up in the morning and think it's my job to help these people and I cannot help them? It it does not feel good. I cannot tell you the amount of sleep I've lost. And I, I knew what I was getting into with this job. I, I didn't come into it with eyes that didn't didn't understand where we we're going. But at this particular level, it's devastating. And so I, I deal with it every day. It brings a great deal of heartache. And it also breeds in me a great deal of frustration because I want people to know the absolute impact that this is having on the world. So I guess from a personal level, I try to keep it in perspective. I try to keep my team in perspective because they're the, they're the ones that are dealing with us on the front lines every day. And we have to keep going. That's our job. That's who we are as WFP. We deliver. Oh. As you have traveled the world in your months on this job and met people, spent time with them, people who are on the brink of starving or watching their mm -hmm. kids on mm -hmm. the brink of starvation, is, is there a story? Is there someone who will stay with you? Oh, I've, I've come across so many people. There was a woman and a couple of children in Somalia that... I wound up sitting with for quite a bit of time and talking to her in Somalia while I was there in a refugee camp. And she was running from hunger. She was running and trying to find a better place for her family and a better, a better life to be able to feed and, and educate her children. And the, the truth of it is, uh, she was probably one of the ones that we wound up cutting because we don't have enough money. And so she stays with me because she left some children behind. She took the most vulnerable children with her. 
And she walked for almost a month to get to this camp that was just over the border in Somalia. And so those kinds of stories and those and the looks on their faces are what really I'm I'm left with yeah. and that I deal with because I, I can see them. I can see her like it was yesterday and knowing full well that she wasn't going to be fed properly. Yeah. Before I let you go, is there any success story, any place you would point us to that gives you hope when you look at it and think, you know what, like if we put in the effort, we can really make a positive change. Well, yes to that. I, I answered, yes, there is. I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't didn't have hope. So I have to believe that we can fix this and that we can, can mitigate it so that people won't starve. But again, it's going to take all of us to do it. Uh, you know, certain parts, obviously Africa is in dire strife right now. Of course, we look at Yemen and other places that are just so, so torn on, on this issue. Uh, but there are some success stories, I, and I'll, Central America being one of them, working on climate change issues and farming, you know, smallholder farmers, things that are really making a difference within their communities. And I'll, I'll also talk a little bit about school feeding programs, our cash-based transfers, those arenas, and, and that part of WPP has been very successful. But again, we just don't have enough. Cindy McCain is the executive director of the World Food Program. Mrs. McCain, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you covering this issue. Please come travel with me sometime. I would look forward to it. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's a flood watch in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until 8 Thursday morning. Could be a lot of runoff, especially in regions with poor drainage since the ground is already saturated. The flood watch is in effect for much of eastern and central Mass, down through Rhode Island and northern Connecticut. Red Sox dropped the series opener with the Yankees this afternoon. It was 3-2 Yanks. They have another chance tonight in the second game of the day-night doubleheader. Game time is 7-10. Cutter Crawford goes for Boston. Carlos Rodon for New York. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard's Art Lab with the film Bravo Burkina, a magical migration love story by Wale Oyejide. This Thursday at 7, Art Lab at Harvard.